So glad to be with you this morning. Got a little bit of a raspy voice. I think some of it is a, the uh, change of a lot drier climate here. And then, of course, uh, we were doing Kingdom Families yesterday and then had meetings and I've kind of talked my voice out, but I'm trusting God to meet me this morning in it. So uh, it sounds a little raspy. It doesn't feel bad. So don't don't worry about that. All right. Uh, and uh, and as we get in this uh, again, hoping God will clear that up some as we work through this morning. I'm glad to be with you. It's always a joy for me to be with you. Uh, I love your leaders, your pastor, uh, your leaders in this church. I have great respect for them. I'm very excited about what God is doing in your midst, where you're going. Uh, and I'm excited about sharing this message with you uh, that I believe God gave for me uh, to share with you this morning, because I think it's very, very appropriate, timely for many of you individually, I'm sure, but also for the church. So I'm hoping this morning that you will hear me on two levels, that you will hear me from the standpoint point of individually receiving this message, but also corporately as a church family, that you'll hear this message because you are on the cusp of doing great things. God has great things He wants to do in your life individually or as a family, but also God has great things that He's wanting to do in the life of this church. And the only way that you and I are going to get those great things is to have great faith. And that's our topic this morning, great faith, great faith. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, Paul says these words. He says, fight the good fight of faith, lay hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Fight the good fight of faith. The Christian life is not a walk in the park. The Christian life is one long, hard battle one long, hard fight of faith, but it's not just a hard fight of faith. It's a glorious fight of faith. It's a glorious battle. It's a glorious fight. Notice what Paul says. He didn't just say, I fought the fight of faith. He said, I fought the good fight of faith, the good fight of faith. Now that begs a question right off the bat, doesn't it? What makes a fight a good fight? Well, of course, a good fight in God, number one, it's one that God is the one who is the originator of. He initiates it. He's the one who ordained it for us. We don't have to go out picking fights, looking for fights. There's a lot of bad things about living in a fallen world. One of them is not you and I having to go out and find fights. They come and find us, don't they? Amen. Right. And when those fights find us, if God brings those into our life or he allows them in our life, it's now a fight of faith, isn't it? Another thing that makes a fight a good fight uh, is that it extends the kingdom of God. It extends the kingdom of God. It advances His church. It brings forth His glory here on earth. That makes a fight a good fight of faith. But let me tell you one thing, first and foremost, in my view, that makes a fight a good fight of faith. It's one that you and I can win. You know, I, I grew up heathen uh, in a heathen family with heathen brothers and heathen friends all around me. And, uh, and there was uh, time periods in my life growing up until I got saved. I excelled in my heathenhood. I really did. I was really good at it. Amen. And uh, and we fought all the time. My brothers, we all fought. We were close in age. We fought all the time. Uh, I fought in school. Uh, I mean, I, you know, it just was the way I grew up. If you didn't like what somebody said, you punched them. You know, you didn't like what they did, you punched them. Uh, you just got in a fight. So I've been in lots and lots and lots of fights growing up. I have never walked away from a fight where I got beat up and walked away saying, that was a good fight. 
Never, never did I walk away from one when I got beat up and said that was a good fight. It's the fight that you and I win that's a good fight. And we can win this fight of faith. Amen? You and I can win this. It's a good fight. And it is the fight of faith. The fight of faith. There is no way that you and I as believers, it's not possible for us to over-exaggerate the importance of faith. Faith is huge in our life. Come on, if you're walking with God, you're going to walk with God and you're going to walk into what God has for you in your life, possess what God wants you to possess in your life, you're going to have to have faith. Now, the Word of God says it this way too. It's in Hebrews 11 verse 6. It says that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So you and I can't even please God unless we have faith in our life. And then it goes on to say in that same verse that not only is it impossible to please God, but it goes on to say this about faith. It says that we must believe that God is and we must believe that God rewards those who diligently seek Him. There's two things there. We have to believe that He is. We have to believe that He rewards those who diligently seek Him. So let's look at those two, all right? First is you must have, you have to believe that He is, that God is. That doesn't just mean that God exists. You have to see the world around you properly. Man, you had to understand that those things that we can't see are more real than the things that we can. Second Corinthians 4, 18 says, the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen, those are the ones that are eternal, saints. Come on, brothers and sisters, those are the things that are eternal. So to live a life of faith, we have to get delivered from our rational thinking. Are you listening to me this morning? If you're going to live a life of faith, you have to get delivered from your rational thinking. Your rational thinking says, listen, I've got to see it before I believe it. I've got to touch it before I believe it. You see, I've got to have God's infinite ways boiled down into such a small little level that my finite, my tiny little finite mind can wrap around it and understand it and agree with it before I actually believe it. But listen to me, saints. Faith doesn't have those limitations. Amen? Faith doesn't have those limitations. You don't have to understand it. You don't have to believe it. You don't have, I mean, you don't have to see it. You don't have to touch it. You don't have to understand how and why and it all makes sense to you. You just know it because you know it because you know it because you know it. Amen. You know it down in your knower. Uh, when my fourth, when my fourth child was born, uh, they immediately rushed him to Texas Children's Hospital in Houston. They said, he's got some serious issues. We're not sure what all they are. Uh, they did all these tests on him. Uh, and a day later, they handed him to us and said, you can take him home. And we said, what? And they said, well, he's not going to live 30 days. We hate to tell you that. It's a terrible thing to say. But the best advice we can give to you is try not to get too attached to him because he won't be here within a month. And in that moment, I did not stop and think in my brain, now, wait a minute, I'm a pastor. I need to find something clever to say right now. Yeah, I should, I should say something faith-filled in this moment. What would it be? What would it be? That didn't happen. I heard it at the same time they did. It surprised me almost as much as it surprised them. It just came out of my mouth. When they said that to us and handed us our son, I looked at him and said, I want to ask you a question. And the doctor said, Sure. The three of them sitting there. I said, they said, sure. And I said, I want to ask you a question. What are you going to do? What bridges are you going to cross in your life when God heals my son? 
And they stopped. They looked at each other. They looked back at me. And one of them said, what did you say? I said, oh, you heard me. And I want you to put it on the table right now. What bridges in your life are you going to cross when God heals him and he lives? I'm telling you, that didn't start up here. Amen. It came out of here. It started here. Now, eventually it got up here, but it came out of here. We grab hold of things, amen, by faith in our spirit. We grab hold of what God is saying and doing by our spirit. Man, we have to believe that he is. Secondly, we have to believe that he rewards those who diligently seek him. He rewards those who diligently seek him. You know what that means? You cannot, you cannot seek God and suffer loss for having done so. They're saying that you can't seek God and suffer loss for having done so. It's impossible. If you seek God, you are never, ever wasting your time. There's sometimes we seek God and we don't see the answer we're looking for. It doesn't happen in the time frame we want it. And we seek him and we seek him and say, oh man, that was a waste of time. Never, ever is it a waste of time. Whether we see it in the natural, whether we experience, it's always been a positive thing. It's a beneficial deal because God always rewards those who diligently seek him. Not in the way that we always want it, all right? I got that, understand that. But God is doing things behind the scenes. It's beneficial to you to seek God. In fact, I don't think there's anything that you and I can do as believers that's more beneficial for us in life than seeking God because God promises he will reward you if you'll diligently seek him. Amen. If you will stay in hard pursuit after God, you're not only going to be rewarded, you're not only going to be blessed, but you will in time be a rich river of blessing to other people around you. Amen. Stay in hard pursuit of God. Now, Hebrews 11 verse 1 provides for us God's definition, the Bible's definition, God's definition of faith. Now, when I understand that, here's the first thing I do. I understand that I don't need to turn to Merriam-Webster. Amen? I've got God's definition of faith. Nobody knows more about faith than God, so I've got his definition. That settles it for me. Amen? It's like people saying, well, I'm going to, I'm going to this conference that some guy's doing on, on healing. And I go, okay, does he have a healing ministry? He's seen lots and lots of fruit of healed lives and, uh, from his ministry. Well, no, no, there, he doesn't, he doesn't, you know, have that in his life. Well, then you go to that conference. I'm staying at home. I'll pass on that one. Man, that's a hard pass for me. I want to hear from somebody who's actually got fruit of it in their life that knows what they're talking about before I go listen to them. And when God starts speaking on faith, all of us should tune in and say, wow, this is it. Amen. This is what I need to get. There's no better definition that we're going to get than this one we get from God in Hebrews 11.1. 1. And it says this, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. The substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. Faith is. That's the first thing, just right there, the first two words. Faith is. Faith can never be spoken of in the future tense. Do you understand that? Faith is never, it can never be spoken of in the future tense. Faith is always in the present tense. Amen? It's in the present tense. Now, it's based on what God has said, what God has done. So it's based on something in the past. That may be way past or it may just be moments past where God is saying God is doing something. But 
even in that sense, it's past tense. It's what God has said, what God is doing. It's based on that, but it's always functioning, always operating. Faith is in the present tense. It's so important for us to get this. Amen? Faith functions in the present tense. It's based on what God has said or done in the past. It functions in the present and its results are seen in the future. And you can look at this in a number of New Testament verses. Uh, if you look at, for example, Mark 11, verse 24, Jesus says these words, Therefore I say to you, whatever you ask for in prayer, not what you dreamed up. Let's stop. Let's make sure we get this. It's based on what God has said, what God has done, what God has showed us. Amen. Either something we've read from his word, it's a promise from God, a word from us or God, or a rhema word where God quickens something to you. It's God has said this. God has showed this to you. It's based on that. Whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received them and you will have them. Believe that you have received them and you will have them. If you look at that, believe you have received them, that's in the past perfect tense in the Greek. Past perfect tense. So I have fully, completely believed this. Amen. I believe that I've received them, past perfect tense, and then what? You will have them in the future tense. Now, if you look at this in the Greek language, this is incredibly odd wording. You almost never find this in the Greek language where you have a past perfect tense in the same sentence with the future tense. That's weird to a Greek way of thinking, man. When they saw a sentence like that, it's like, what? Something's wrong with this sentence. But when we understand faith, then it makes perfect sense to us when we read this because it's what? It's based on what God has said. We believe it in the present and then we see it in the future. Amen. You possess it by faith in the past. Therefore, it becomes yours in the future. Man, Hebrews 11.1 1 uses two very important words here that are essential to you and I understanding faith. They're absolutely essential to us understanding faith. And we need to understand faith because faith is the what? It's the foundation of our Christian life. And it is the way that you and I live in a way that's pleasing to God. It's the way you and I operate daily. It's the way you and I possess the thing that God had for us. So faith is critical. And it gives us these two important words. They're absolutely essential. And both of these words are legal terms. They're legal terms. Fascinating to look at. They're legal terms. So when they were spoken, when Paul writes this letter in that day, they're common legal terms. When people hear them, they know immediately, oh, I understand what you're saying. Oh, that's a powerful. Now we read them today. We get it in the English. They're powerful. But boy, when we understand what these legal terms mean, it just really opens this up for us and helps us get a really good grasp on faith and how we apply that in our life. The first phrase is this. Faith is the substance. Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the substance. That word in the Greek is hypostasis, all right? It's also translated assurance, confidence in some English translation. And what that word is, it's a legal term speaking of a legal document that gave a person undisputed title to a piece of property. It's a legal document that gives you undisputed title to a piece of property. Today, we would use the term, when we talk about this, we would use the term title deed. You have the title deed, the legal document, that means you're now the undisputed owner of that piece of property. 
the title deed. With that legal document, you're now the undisputed owner of whatever that is that that document describes. Amen? Faith is the title deed of things hoped for. Come on, you have hope for, oh, I hope, I hope, I hope. But do you have the title deed to that hope? Faith is the title deed to what you and I hope for. Amen? Any of you in here bought a new house? Buy a new house. You buy a new house. What happens is you go and you find the home you want. It's like, oh, that's great. It's for sale. And you, what? Begin negotiations on that house, on the price, and maybe some of the terms and some of the conditions, how long you get to inspect it, all those things. And you draw up and sign a sales contract. And so what happens is Curtis and Alice, Alice, then they, they, they find this uh, house and they're going to buy it. And, uh, and so they get a sales contract on it. And I come to them and said, oh, Curtis and Allison, I'm so excited. I heard y'all bought a new home. What do they say? If they understand what's really going on here, here's what they say. We hope so. Well, I'm so excited, Curtis, you bought that home. I hope so. Well, I heard you bought a new home. I hope so. You don't own it? No. I've got a sales contract on it, but it's not mine yet. I hope I have a new home. But then comes closing day. They go to the title company. They sign all the documents, all the legal documents, and they walk outside and they pull out of that stack of documents one especially important document called the title deed, and they hold it up and they said, it's mine, I own it, I own it, it's mine. I am undisputed owner of this piece of property because I have the title deed to it. Oh, come on, saints. That's what faith is for you and I. It's the title deed of those things that we hope for, amen? All right, that's the first phrase. Here's the second phrase. Faith is the evidence... The evidence of things not seen. Interesting word here, the Greek word, elingos, and that means convincing proof. Faith is the convincing proof of things not seen. That's another legal term. As I said before, these are both legal terms. This one's a legal term as well. And this speaks of what happened in a courtroom when an attorney comes in and he, pre- he presents to the judge convincing proof of something that's happened. Maybe somebody has committed some heinous crime. They need to be locked up to protect society. And therefore, he comes in there and he presents convincing proof of the crime that's been committed so that person gets locked away to protect the rest of us. And so he comes in there, he makes the argument, he presents this evidence, and the judge says, well, you know, uh, that's really a good case But the problem is, is I didn't see it with my own two eyes. Therefore, I can't convict him. Whoa, we got a problem. Almost nobody's going to be convicted, man. Today, sometimes we have video, right, of of things. So those could maybe be convicted. But back in that day, obviously, they didn't have videos. The attorney needed to bring convincing proof in order for the judge to decide rightly on it, amen. And the judge can't say, well, I didn't see it. Come on. I have so many Christians throughout the world that I've talked with that just say to me, you know, well, hey, Miles, seeing is believing. And I tell them every single time, no, 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 no. That's wrong. And in fact, you got it exactly backwards. Believing is seeing. You won't see it until you believe it in many things in our life. Amen. You've got to believe it first or you will never see it. 
So, come on, let me help you get a hold of this. It, it, let's say, for example, that Chick-fil-A decides, that the CEO of Chick-fil-A, he's decides, you know, we're going to put the first Chick-fil-A in Europe. And so we found this place in Frankfurt. We think that's the first place we're going to start, Frankfurt, Germany. And so we're going to build the first Chick-fil-A in Europe. And so uh, they, they uh, find, he hires different people there. They real estate people and others. They in there, they, they analyze the city, find the right place. They come back to him and say, we found the first perfect piece of property. They make an offer on it. The contract's accepted. You're right. And then it comes to closing day, right? And they close on the property. And the attorneys get on the phone and they call him and said, hey, it's all closed. It's all done. We've looked all over the paperwork. It's all set. It's all done. The next day in the mail, he gets by FedEx all of the legal documents. He's sitting there at his desk. He pulls them out. He sifts through all the documents. They all look good. He's looking especially for one document. It's called the title deed. He pulls that out. He looks at it and he says, okay, here we go. He gets on the phone. He starts calling. He calls his bank and he starts releasing tens of thousands, maybe even hundreds of thousands of dollars that start going out to different people to start the groundwork and the construction of the building. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. He's never even been to Frankfurt. He's not seen the property. What's happening here? Why would he let all that money go? Because he's had convincing proof from the attorneys and he also now has the title deed to it and therefore, he moves in faith, amen, as a result of that and says, aha, let's go ahead and release this. It's ours. We can do this, amen? Faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not seen. Everybody got that? Come on, you got that this morning. All right, that's my intro. All right, now we can get to what I really want to get to, Amen. <laughs> Let's talk about great faith this morning. We need to understand faith. Now that we understand faith a bit better, let's look at great faith. In the New Testament, there are only two people that Jesus said had great faith. That's amazing in and of itself. Only two people that Jesus said had great faith. One was a Roman centurion. The other was the Canaanite woman. And one of the fascinating things is as you begin to look at these two individuals is this. Neither one of them came to Jesus wanting something for themselves. Isn't that fascinating? They came to Jesus wanting something for somebody else. The Roman centurion, he wanted what? Healing for his faithful servant who was fatally ill. Uh, the, the Canaanite woman, what did she want? She wanted healing for her daughter, deliverance, healing for her demonized daughter. So both of them came not for something for themselves, but something for someone else. And I think it's also very interesting to note that neither one of these two were Jews. Neither one of those were the children of God. Isn't that fascinating? I find that very, very fascinating. One of the things that happens to me frequently is when people find that I've spent 25 plus years going to Africa, most years, two times a year, training pastors over there for the last 25 plus years, and they find that I've been there. They find that I've been uh, uh, there a number of times with Reinhard Bonnke doing ministry with him where you have uh, stadiums there that can't be used because none of the stadiums across the nation, the continent of Africa, nation after nation, none of them have stadiums big enough to hold the crowds that he brings. Uh, so it's 150,000 up each night that come to his meeting. And every single night you'll see 50 to 80 of the most amazing miracles you've ever seen. I mean, literally people in their 30s and 40s that were born blind and God popping eyes in them. Deaf mutes, we'd see like 20 a night deaf mutes get healed. 
I mean, people that are run over by a truck, broken every bone almost in their body. And that was 12 years ago. So all their muscles are atrophied. The family carries them in in a blanket, lays them there. They're prayed for and just watch them sit up and everybody starts screaming. The family members start running and they, she stands up and she starts walking around and then she starts jogging, running around in a circle. And everybody, I mean, some of them are rolling in the dirt. They're just, oh, they don't know how to respond. They're, oh my God. And that's why every single night you get three to 5,000 people saved. And you have this stream of people all night long, these big barrels of fire up in front of the stage and they're up there throwing all their witchcraft stuff in it. Just, just a steady stream throughout the night, every night. Amazing. And they said, man, I heard you used to do stuff and did pastors training things with Reinhard Bonnke in there. And I said, yeah, and you've been in Africa. You've seen all these miracles. Oh, yeah. Every time we go, amazing. Incredible. miracle, Right before your eyes. It's amazing. Can I ask you a question? I go, yeah, I, I knew that was coming. And I know what the question is already. How come is it that you see all these miracles in Africa, but yet we hardly see any here in the U.S.? I'm talking, well, there's a number of factors for that, I think. You know, uh, some of it is that the Western civilization tends to deny the supernatural, has a problem with it. Some of you here may be born-again believers. You love the Lord. But even what I just told you, you're like, wow, did that, I mean, did people really, you know, that lady really? I mean, is that, is that part of it? Is this something with our Western mindset? We struggle sometimes with supernatural. They don't. Here's another thing. We have medicine as a backup. They don't have a backup. They don't have a plan B or C or D or E. If God doesn't move, that's it. But I think the biggest one is simply this. Today in the U.S., we have too many U.S. Christians that are too familiar with a non-powerful Jesus. The Jesus they know is a non-powerful Jesus. It's the same problem that the people of Nazareth had. We can read about this in Mark chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, He, Jesus, could do no mighty works there except lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. What was their problem? The problem was in Nazareth that they had known Jesus for 30 years. They had known Jesus for 30 years, but during those 30 years, Jesus had done nothing powerful among them because his time had not yet come. So they had no 30 years of this non-powerful Jesus. And Jesus shows up now as the powerful, miracle-working Jesus. And they can't make the transition. They can't change between them. Amen? And some people in our churches here in America, they've grown up in churches and they've never, ever seen a miracle with their own eyes. And therefore, all they know is a non-powerful Jesus. And that's one of the reasons why we don't see enough of them in our churches. Amen? We need to see more and more of those. We need to believe for more and more of those. God wants to do more and more of those. Amen. And we're thrilled that what God is doing uh, in my home church and our church that we're seeing more and more of these. We've had a child in our church that was born blind. All the doctors, Texas local, Texas children said he's completely blind. He can't see. You know, we don't know if there's going to be anything we can do surgery wise. We're going to do more testing. We came over and prayed for them and he got his eyesight back just boom immediately. They took him back the next day to Texas children. They did all the tests on him again. They said, his guy, this child has got 20-20 vision. Why did you, what's the deal? What is all this about? We've had people we prayed for. I had a woman that came to our church uh, that, that was came forward one Sunday when we were praying for people. She said, I'm spotting, I'm, I'm pregnant, I've lost several, I've had several miscarriages. I'm afraid I'm going to lose this baby. We all please pray for her? So we prayed for her. And as we were praying for her, she said, oh, oh, she started, and I'm like, what's going on? She, oh, she said, it hurts. And what's hurt? She said, it's burning. My left side is burning. 
I said, well, I, you know, I don't know what's going on with that. He said, oh, it's just, it hurts, Pastor. I'm going, well, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry. I don't know what's going on. She said, well, I think God healed me. I'm going to cancel my appointment that I have on Tuesday with the doctor. I said, no, no, no. You're going to go to that appointment. You're going to get checked out. Don't you do that, all right? You follow. And if God healed you, then we'll just all get to celebrate the medical confirmation of what God did, all right? And she said, oh, okay, all right. She calls me on Tuesday. She is talking so loud. She's almost screaming on the phone. And I keep, settle down. I can't understand you. I can't. And she finally calms down enough after a few minutes to where she talks normal and I can understand her. She said, I went into the doctor. I told him what had gone on. And he said, okay, well, let's do some checks. I'm going to just do a whole battery of checks on you. And so they went in there. He did all these different tests, different things that he did, including x-rays, you know, and he said, I'm just going to check everything out. So she goes out and waits in the waiting room for some bit of time. He finally calls her back in, sits in her office, and he said, well, honey, he said, everything's fine. I got great news for you. The baby is perfectly fine. So all's good on this. She said, oh, praise God. And he said, you know, we went and ran all these other tests because we want to check, make sure there were no problems with any of your major organs and everything. And he said, everything's fine. Your lungs are fine. Your liver is fine. Both of your kidneys are fine. You're, and she said, whoa, whoa, stop. She said, I only have one kidney. He said, what? He said, no, no, I just looked at your x-rays. You have two. She said, no, when I was 12 years of age, they removed my left kidney. And he said, well, hang on a second. He left. He came back and popped it up. He had one of those screens in his office, popped the x-ray. He said, no, you got two kidneys. They're perfect. So God not only healed her, the baby, he popped a new kidney in there for her while he was at it. Amen. Now, we're believing God to see more and more of that, and you need to be believing the same. Amen? I'm telling you, God wants to do big things in our midst, and we need great faith to see those happen, all right? In Luke 7, verses 1 through 9, we read about the Roman centurion. Let's look at these two people. First one is Roman centurion. Luke 7, 1 through 9. When he completed all his teaching in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. Now, a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders to him, asking him to come and save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they strongly urged him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him because he loves our nation. And he was, it was he who built us our synagogue. Now, Jesus started on his way with them, but already when he was not yet far from the house, the centurion sent friends saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to enter my roof. For that reason, I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word, and my servant shall be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, with soldiers under myself. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him, and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. Now, the Roman centurion understood why Jesus operated in such incredible power. Amen? He understood it, and he understood it because of his military background. That's exactly what we're getting in this story. Right? It gives us the why behind he, him having great faith. He understood it, his military background. He understood the deal. When my superior officers speak to me, I immediately, without any argument, 
Any debate in my mind or outside of it, even in my mind, I immediately, unconditionally jump to and do what they say to do. Because when they speak to me, they're men under authority. And when they speak, it's as though the king himself has spoken. The words that they speak are as though the king's words himself. And so I don't say, well, I don't really feel like doing that today. You know, let me consider. I mean, think about that. That's a good option for me to consider. He doesn't do any of that. Well, I just not, that's just not really my calling and my gift. He just says, okay, that's it. I'll do it. I don't think. I just do it. I reflexively, unconditionally obey what's said to me. And likewise, I have soldiers underneath me. And when I say something to them, they unconditionally obey what I say to them because I'm a man under authority. Therefore, when I speak, I have authority. My words are as though they were the words of the king himself. Amen? Now, listen to me, saints. If you want to operate in great faith, we need to get this. You better learn this. Faith doesn't begin in the place of you and I starting to get teaching about faith and hearing some uh, guy on TV maybe speaking about, oh, you just need to confess this stuff, you know, and you need to speak this stuff out and you can create things with your own work. No, you're going to, faith operates off of what God has said and what God has done. It lays hold of what he said and what he's done, man. And, and it's not about blabbing and grabbing. Come on. It's what? First and foremost... It starts here. It doesn't begin by speaking out God's word. It begins by unconditionally obeying God's word. That's where great faith starts. Unconditionally obeying God's word. Years ago, I was traveling with a guy. I met him at a conference. He and I were speaking at, and we actually ended up speaking at a couple different conferences together. We became close friends and I began to travel with him in different places in the world. And one time I remember we were in uh, India for just over a month. Uh, and uh, this guy, uh, it, it was John in the faith. He's 70 something in his seventies. He's a Brit, uh, powerful, powerful man of God. He planted over 300 churches in India alone himself uh, and oversaw major ministries around the world. And we were staying there. The first conference we did was in Delhi, had 1,400 pastors and their wives there from all across northern India each day. We were doing two sessions each, each day. And in the evening, we were sitting there. We were staying in this pastor's house, this little room, and they moved in two, not desks, but like two little tiny tables, you know, and put these little wooden chairs, you know, beside them on each of the walls. And so in the evening before the next day, we were kind of going over our notes for the next day and making changes based on what they're getting and what we could sense and feel by the Holy Spirit, what needed to be said the next day. And we were sitting there, we'd have these great conversations many of these evenings. And one of the evenings there, we were talking about uh, a topic and, and we we're talking about obedience, being radically obedient to God. And he said, oh, God worked that in my life, Miles, many years ago as a young man. He said, and, and he said, I, I got it. And when I got saved, I immediately began to translate that directly into my life in God. And it's one of the things that helped me come into what God had for me. And I said, well, tell me the story. And so he started telling me how back in 1949, he entered the British army. And at that time, there was a king. So like we have now just recently in, in England. And so you were under the king, his majesty's service, HMS. It could be her if it's queen. King, it's his. HMS, his majesty's service. And he said, when I signed on and came into the British army, he said, my first day there, he said, this wicked, wicked man, evil man, who's called a drill sergeant, 
came up to me and he took this big book. He said, it's about the size of a Bible. And he took it and he threw it into my chest. It hit me in the chest. I caught it and he got right in my face and he said, read this book, memorize this book and do everything in it. Do you got me? He said, "Uh, yes, sir. And he said, when he walked off, I turned around, I opened, turned over the book and looked at it. And the title of it was The King's Regulations. The King's Regulations. He said, in that book were hundreds, even thousands of things that the king said you will do. And then there were hundreds, even thousands of things that you will no longer do. And you're now going to do what the king says. Amen. In every area of your life. From this point forward, you cut your hair the way the king says you cut your hair. Well, I don't, my hair doesn't really look good that way. It doesn't matter. You do it the way the king says. Amen. This is not up for debate. It's not up for discussion. It's not a matter of you praying it through. You just do it and you do it the king's way, man. You shine your shoes the way the king says you shine your shoes. You tie your tie, your necktie, the way the king says to tie your necktie. Well, you just don't understand the tradition in my family or what I'm used to. Nobody cares about your tradition. Nobody cares about the way you prefer to tie your tie. From this day forward, you tie it the way the king says to tie it. And he said, I remember one morning, he said, I was out there lined up in the beginning of the morning. Everybody line up, you line up. And he said, I'm sure others were doing the same. He said, I was there shaking in my boots and just saying, oh, Lord, please let him pass by me. Don't let him stop because he's doing inspection. He's walking down the line. And he said, sure enough, that morning, he stopped right in front of me, turned. And he said, the thing about this guy, he spoke to you like you were three football fields away from him. But the trouble was his nose was about an inch from your nose. And so he stops and he gets right up in my face. His nose is right there by mine. And he says, Sonny, yes, sir, yes, sir. He said, did you shave today? Well, well, no, sir. Why not? Well, I only need to shave once every three days. The king says you shave every day. Go get shaved. Yes, sir. (laughs) And he said, Miles, the best of us, we became like the words of the king made flesh. Oh, I hope you're tracking with this. The best of us, we became like the words of the king made flesh. And he said, and those, the best of the best, they got pulled into officers' candidate school, officer school. And he said, I got picked. I was never so excited, Mom. He said, oh, man, I'm done with that. He said, little did I know. Oh, my goodness. He said, it had just started. It got harder, not easier. How many of you in here want to be in officer's candidate school in the kingdom of God, amen, in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, it's harder, not easier. Amen. We need to get that. And this centurion, listen, this centurion, he was probably trained in a very similar way. And he saw this as the key to Jesus' authority. That's what we're given here. When the centurion spoke, all the power of Rome was behind his words. And he understood that Jesus was a man of authority. And so when Jesus spoke, all the power of heaven was behind his words. Why? Because he was a man under authority. Because he was a man under authority, he therefore now had authority. 
And so the day comes where the Roman centurion decides to retire. I put in my 20 plus years, got a good retirement. I'm ready to be done with this. He enters into civilian life. His first day in civilian life, he's, he's in his chariot. He's headed to H-E-B to get some groceries. Amen. And he has a flat tire in his chariot. All right, and so he pulls on the side of the road. He says, oh man, he said, it's been so long since I've done this. I've always had troops doing it for me. I've almost forgotten how to do this. But praise God, he looks up and he sees this group of soldiers walking down the road towards him. He says, oh, thank you, Lord. And he turns and he looks at them and he says, hey, you guys get over here right now and fix my tire. And they look at him and they go, What? You're no longer under authority, therefore you have no authority. Oh, are you listening to me this morning? See, when you get your life under the authority of God, under the authority of God's word, then and only then are you going to speak words and they're going to have an actual impact. You're going to pray things and you're going to see results. But the reason that you're not, stop blaming God for it and start looking in the mirror and saying, I'm the man. I'm the woman. Amen. I'm the one who needs to get this fixed. When I get under authority, then I will have authority. You're not going to have the authority to speak God's word and see what happens the way God wants to see it happen until you get this right. Amen. Until you get this right. Come with me to Matthew 15. Let's look at the second one. Let's look at the second one. Matthew 15, 21 and 22. We see the second person that had great faith. Matthew 15, 21 and 22. Jesus went away from there. Then he withdrew into the region of Tyre and Sidon. And a Canaanite woman from that region came out and began to cry out saying, Have mercy on me, Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely demon-possessed. Now, if you read on in the very next verse, the disciples had no time for her whatsoever, no mercy, no grace for her. And they said these words, send her away because she's making such a dreadful noise. Well, yeah, the disciples, I mean, we read a lot of stories in the gospels. Those guys, sometimes they're kind of jacked up. They got some issues, you know, but thank God Jesus is on the scene. I'm sure he'll straighten that out, but read on. What does it say in that same verse 23? Jesus answered her, not a word. Not a word. In other words, Jesus completely ignores this woman. Jesus, that mercy, my daughter, she's severely demon possessed. Help me. And he acts like she's not even there. Now that's hard for us to get hold of because it's like, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. That's Jesus. Why would he do that? And to complicate the matters more for us, if you back up and look at the story that just took place before this one, you know where we are? We're at the city of Nain where Jesus walks up as he's coming into the city of Nain. This widow woman is coming out. She's lost her husband years before. Now she's lost her only child, her son, and they're proceeding out of the city in a funeral procession. Jesus walks up on the scene. Nobody asks him to do anything. He's not responding to anybody's faith. As far as we know, nobody even knows or recognizes who he is in that, in that setting. He walks up there. He takes in what's going on. He discerns what's happening and he's moved with compassion. He walks over there and touches the casket and the boy is brought back from the dead, brought to life. And so here we have the very next story. This Canaanite woman, she's saying, Jesus, Jesus, have mercy. My daughter, she, she's severely demon possessed. And Jesus completely ignores her. So there has to be a reason for this. 
And as we look at this, we say, well, what, what is Jesus doing here? What's he doing? Is he looking at her and discerning her? There's this great faith down inside of you. And I'm going to draw this up to the surface. Why am I going to do that? Well, did he do it for the benefit of his disciples so that they could see it and go, wow. I mean, wow. And, and he could use that as an incredible teaching tool for them. Oh, yeah, for sure. Did he do it for all of us disciples who are going to come for years and years and years, millions and millions of Christians around the world who read this story and we're inspired by that and challenged by that? Oh, yeah, for sure. Did he do it for her? To draw it up in her, what she didn't even realize she had in herself so that she could take that and replicate that again and again in her life in other areas of her life to come. Oh, for sure. So which one was it? It's all of the above, I believe. I mean, I think it's yes, yes, and yes. And as we see what happens, what plays out in this story, what happens is Jesus is going to take her through four tests. Four tests. Here's the first one. The silence test. We just talked about it. Jesus completely ignores her. He completely ignores her. Listen to me, those of you who want to have great faith in your life, you had better get this. You better, well, I want great faith. I just want to get in the right prayer line someday. And I get it. You know, okay. Join a lot of other charismatic squirrels on that one. See what happens. Amen. If you want to get great faith in your life, Come on, this is, you need to learn these tests. You're going to walk through these. God's going to take you through these. This first one, the silence test. There are going to be times when you and I are going to go through life when we're going to go through distress. We're going to go through difficult, difficult times in our life. And we're going to cry out to God. And some of those times when we go through these difficult tests, we cry out to God. Nothing happens. We don't hear anything. We don't feel anything. We don't sense anything. And it's like, God. What's the deal? God, I thought you loved me. And, and look at this mess that I'm in. God, could you come and, and I thought you loved me. And, and look what's happening. And look how it's affecting not just me, but others. I mean, God, and by the way, I thought you loved me. And, and nothing comes in return. And saints, we've got to learn that what's going on here? What's God doing? He's trying to develop faith in you. He's trying to develop great faith inside of you. That's what he's doing. I did a message, uh, and I've done it in a number of places in the world years ago. It's called Right Song, Wrong Side. It's a very powerful picture, exactly what we get from Scripture. When the people of Israel come out of, out of Egypt, 400 years of bondage, God delivers them out. They come there to the Red Sea, and they're there on the edge of the Red Sea, and then the, what? the Egyptian army shows up. Most all of you, you know the story. And they begin to cry out to God, oh God, why'd you do this to us? You brought us out here just so they could kill us out here. Why? Man, we just should have stayed in Egypt. And if you watch what God says to him, he's actually not very nice to him. He basically says, shut up. Pipe down over there. And just, Moses, just lift your rod. So he lifts his rod. He parts the sea. They walk through. God even dries the ground so their sandals don't even get muddy, right? They get on the other side. When the Egyptian army pursues, he releases the water. It wipes them out. And at that point in time, you know what they do? Where are the tambourines? Oh, let's get the, everybody get a tambourine. Let's sing. Let's dance. Let's work. Oh, God, he's so good. God is good. God, all the time, God is good. God, God is good all the time, bro. God, God is good. God is good. Three days later, they come to Mara. 
Bitter water. We finally got water. They drink the water. Ah, this is bitter water. God, why did you bring us out here in the desert so that we're all going to die? Why didn't, you, why didn't you just leave us in Egypt? God heals the water. It's now tastes sweet and wonderful. Where are those tambourines? Let's get those tambourines. Let's say, God, you're so good, God. And if you'll read through the story, you'll see them do this again and again and again. They don't get like a week or two and they do it again. And again. they never, ever learn their lesson. Never learn their lesson. Every single time. It was the right song. It was just on the wrong side of the Red Sea. Come on, can you get that? And we need to learn as a people of God who are serious about being a people of faith, especially a people of great faith. We need to learn how to sing the right song on the right side before it happens. We need to learn how to praise our way to victory in life. You worship your way to victory in life. Come on. That's a totally different level of you and I walking with God. The silence test. We have to pass that test. Then came the second test, the reproach test. Jesus says nothing. His disciples are saying, send her away. They're annoyed by her noisy persistent. What's her response? She just pressed in more. She got louder. She got stronger. She pressed in more. This gal reminds me of blind Bartimaeus. What's going on? What's that noise over there? Oh, it's Jesus and his disciples are coming in the city. Jesus, have mercy on me, Jesus. Man, that's not cool. That doesn't look cool. You're not, don't you know the etiquette around here? Calm down. Calm, I mean, shh, come on, be respectful. What did he do? He just got louder. I don't care how I look and sound. I want Jesus' touch in my life. And that's exactly what's going on here. Oh, man, I'm telling you, I love this lady. She didn't care what she looked like. She didn't care what she sounded like. She didn't care what other people thought about her. She wanted an answer from Jesus, and she's pressing in. She passed the reproach test with flying colors. And then comes the theological test, number three, the theological test. Look at verse 24. Jesus says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. I've met so many people that are in pursuit of something from God that God himself birthed in them. And in that pursuit, they run into a theological roadblock. Something that they've read or heard, preached or taught, their background, their traditions, family, friends, other ones, sometimes well-meaning, come to them. Oh, brother, you need to, that, 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 doesn't, that doesn't pertain to the day. I mean, you can't, that's just, that was a different dispensation. That, oh, you just don't, no, that's not really, I don't just think that's God. I don't really, what? And they get talked out of it from a theological roadblock in their life. And I've watched so many of them do that. They pursue, they pursue, they pursue, and then they hit it. Oh, well. And so this, Canaanite woman, she comes there and Jesus says, I wasn't sent to you. I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Oh, rats. Oh, man. I really wanted my daughter healed, but oh, well, you know, if that's, I'll go home now. No, she presses in even stronger. Listen to what she does. She presses in closer to Jesus. Verse 25. Then she came and began to bow down before him saying, Lord, help me. And when you read those words, she bowed down. That's the, in the Greek, that's the word proiskaneo. And it means literally to come and worship on our belly in the same way a dog does. That's literally what it dog-like. 
where you come down and you bow down and you bow and you lick the hand of the master. That's literally what the word proskuneo means. Proskuneo, come like a dog and beg and lick. I, I tell you, I had a black lab years ago, Sally and I did. Her name was Emma. And, uh, you know, and, and I'm telling you, that dog, that dog got anything and everything it wanted. I'd come outside, hot day, I'm so glad to get a Bluebell ice cream cone, and I'm sitting there eating that thing, and Emma would see it, and she'd come over, and she'd dart, you know, and I'm going, no, go away, you're not getting, I'm, I'm eating this ice cream cone, I've been looking forward to this all day long, go away, and she'd come over there, and, and I'm like, no, go, just go away, and she'd give me those sad eyes, and she'd come up there and lay her head on my, go, I'm not giving you this ice cream cone, and she'd begin to lick my hand, I'm like, okay, take my ice cream cone, I mean, that's literally the word that's used here. And then look what happens. That takes us right to the next one, the last test, the offense test. You can understand why Jesus said what he said to her. This is part of what's in there. Verse 26, he answered and said, it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. What? What did you just say? Now, see, at this point, for most of us, for most of us Christians today around the world, see, if we even get to this point, we get here and it's like, I'm out now. How dare you? How, did you hear what he said? Can you believe that he said that? Did you hear what he called me? Oh my God. I'm not going to, I'm, I don't, there's no, I, we're not only going to leave, we're going to leave highly offended. And by the way, you can't escape the racial overtones that are in this deal. We're living in a thing right now in this, in, in, here in America with all this racial tension. I mean, man, I'm telling you. I mean, it's like, it is. It's like saying something that, you know, I, you know I, hey, pastor, can you come pray for my child? Yeah, I would, but you're this, you know, you're black, you're Hispanic. You're, I'm not coming. What? Or me saying, will you come? To, no, I'd come to you, but you're white. I'm not coming to you. What? And not a private conversation. We do that on the stage with the mic on where everybody else hears it because that's what's happening here. Yeah. But she won't let go. Verse 27, yes, Lord, but even the dogs eat the crumbs which fall from their master's table. Oh, my God. I would have given anything, as the saying goes, to be a fly on the wall that day, wouldn't you? Not just to watch the reaction of all those around, to hear those words come out of her mouth at that point. But to see Jesus' face, don't you know his face at that moment, hearing those words from her lips, it must have been glowing. Don't you know that he just wanted to jump up and go, yes, yes, finally, finally. I've been looking everywhere for faith like this. Finally, I found it. You won't let go. You shamelessly pursue. No matter what obstacles in your path, you keep pressing through. Look at the words of Jesus in verse 28. Then Jesus says to her, Oh woman, your faith is great. You have great faith. It shall be done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed at once. And her daughter was healed at once. I hope and I trust that this morning 
that there are many of you, not all of you, many of you here this morning, that you're hearing this and you're, you're, you're something's stirring inside of you. It's the same thing that stirs inside of me every time I touch these passages. God, I don't want to be simply a person of faith. I want to be a person of great faith. Make that real in my life. Shamelessly pursue. Won't let go. Keep pressing. Once you've made it clear to me that this is something that you have for me, then I will not let go no matter what. I won't give up. I won't give in. I won't stop. And may we as a, as a, as a congregation, as a church family, may we, may that be shot through this church, not just in this hour, but for years and years, decades to come, that this church would be known. Harvest Connection. Boy, that's a place of great faith. Oh my God. It's one of the signature things about this house. May God stir that in our hearts this morning. May we, may we have a, a passion inside of us that burns that says, I don't want Anything less than that. I won't settle for anything less than that. Come on, saints. Stand with me this morning. Let's pray. And I'm sorry I've run over time. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. And I'll turn it over to you, Curtis, at the end of this. Father, I thank you. I thank you for what you speak to us from your word. God, I pray that we get this this morning. That we get this. And we get it deep down inside of us. Not just head knowledge, but God shot to the core of our being and that it just begin from there to just burn its way out in us. A passion, a drive to be that kind of disciple, to be that kind of person, a person of faith, but oh God, a person of great faith. Build that in us, Lord that we live a life that's pleasing to you in the highest and a life that impacts this world in an amazing, truly amazing way, God. May that become real, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.